Hello, this is Congressman Jim Clyburn, and I would like to welcome you to my podcast, Clyburn Chronicles. I have always been a lover of history. I see this platform as a way to connect history with the politics of today. This is so important because as Judge Santiano once said, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Each episode, my guest and I will have a conversation about the lessons of the past, the politics of the present, and how we must learn from those experiences to help shape the future. Thank you for taking time to listen, and welcome to Clyburn Chronicles. Welcome to another edition of Clyburn Chronicles. Today, we are honored with the presence of the mayor of Atlanta, Georgia, the 60th mayor of Atlanta, Georgia, Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms, is someone who has made a tremendous name for herself in recent years. He's a lifelong public servant, uh, having served in all three branches of the Atlanta's government uh, before becoming mayor. Uh, well, Mayor Nixon uh, III, the executive. She's been on the city council and she's been a judge. And so with that kind of background and the experiences that come with it, uh, it is no wonder uh, that she was so well prepared uh, to be a mayor of what uh, we used to call when I was coming along uh, the South's most progressive city. And so Mayor Bottoms has done some very progressive things uh, as the mayor of Atlanta. Uh, one of those things that are endears her to me is the elimination of cash bonds uh, for uh, the city of Atlanta. That to me is as progressive as they get. But also very important to me is the whole issue of affordable housing. And she's pioneered in that area as well. And for others, uh, the fact that she closed down the Atlanta Detention Center uh, to uh, ICE. Uh, well, I think that to me demonstrates uh, that she is as progressive as anybody would want her to be uh, in that great city. And so I'm very honored uh, to have her with us today. And I would like to just say to her how much I appreciate not just her past record, but what I've seen uh, as she's gone about uh, carrying out her duties and responsibilities uh, to the people who elected her. And so uh, in view uh, of uh, our recent experiences uh, in two particular areas. Uh, we're gonna get in depth in our discussions with her today. The first one, COVID-19. Uh, we know uh, what that pandemic uh, has visited upon this great country of ours. Uh, and Mayor Bottoms has been uh, just a beacon light in responding to the pandemic. And also in recent days, uh, she and her family uh, have made it a very personal issue 
uh, and the way they have conducted themselves throughout this uh, is real, a real lesson for all of us. And then I want to get uh, to the whole issue uh, of policing. Uh, all of us are aware of uh, what that issue uh, has meant uh, throughout the African-American community and most especially the African-American community, community uh, in the South. Uh, and then if we have time, uh, I would like to talk to her a little bit about the overall issue of race itself, uh, which has been bled into uh, by the experiences uh, we have seen recently with policing. And maybe uh, we'll talk a little bit uh, about voting. So with that uh, having been said, let me now say to the mayor how much I appreciate her, uh, how much I appreciate her leadership and the example that she has set for all the people I know who are juggling personal family responsibilities with the whole issue of public service. And sometimes that can be a juggling act uh, hard uh, to uh, succeed at, but she has done it and done it very well. And with that, let me just ask the mayor uh, to share with us a little bit uh, about how it has been running her city and responding to this pandemic. Mayor Bottoms. Well, thank you, Congressman Clyburn. It is truly an honor to join you. And whenever I watch you speak and I, I admire your leadership so much, I often think about what my mother says and that you only have to tell the truth once. And what I appreciate about you is that you speak your truth and you don't seem to have any regard um, for whom it offends or how it is received, but you, you speak it and that is really um, so such a great example for leaders like me because we are often faced with quite frankly trying to please a number of people and the reality is that we can, we will never be able to please them all and what i've learned uh, with covid-19 in addition to speaking my truth on covid-19 is uh, really going with common sense and data by that, I mean, at the beginning of this pandemic, my charge to my team was very simple. God bless the child who's got his own. And we would approach this pandemic hoping for guidance and assistance from the federal government and from the state, but we were going to assume that we were going to have to go it alone. And unfortunately, in so many ways, that's been proven to be right. COVID-19 in Atlanta um, has been devastating to our communities, our black and brown communities specifically. It's also frustrating in that it didn't have to be this way because we could look at New York, we could look at places across the globe and we saw exactly where this was headed and we had a number of opportunities to make different decisions. And unfortunately in the state of Georgia, we did not. Um, you mentioned personally, my family has been touched by COVID-19. As I speak with you today, I have tested positive. Um, I have a child who's tested positive and my husband has tested positive. And we are an example of this story we're hearing all across America. There's an asymptomatic child in the house. 
who unknowingly spreads it uh, to their parents. Thankfully, we don't have underlying health conditions, but that being said, my husband, I, I told him I wasn't gonna call him Rip Van Winkle, I was gonna call him Bra Van Winkle because he has been sleeping nonstop for over a week and it has really just knocked him to his knees. And just by the grace of God, it, it hadn't been much worse than that for us. Um, but what we've been faced with as a city is, is making decisions in light of where we are with the number of cases. We're almost maxed out with our ICU beds in the city. Uh, just trying to make decisions that would, would work best for the people of Atlanta because the state has been so aggressive in opening. So uh, last week I mandated masks in the city of Atlanta. We know that helps stop the spread. We have also reverted back to phase one of our reopening that's driven by data and metrics. It is essentially a stay at home order. It is an, an advisory recommendation, but people in our city were looking for guidance. And so we're trying to give them science and data. Um, and then just also even how we treat our city workers from the beginning, we were one of the first cities to institute hazard pay for our sanitation workers, for our workers who were going out on the front line, providing meals to our kids and our seniors, et cetera. So we've been uh, giving out $500 in hazard pay. And thankfully with the HEROES Act, and I appreciate the passage of the HEROES Act, it has helped us fill in the gap um, to help cover some of these expenses. And so it, it, it's been tough, Congressman. I know that you know that and you're hearing it across the country, um, but especially in our communities of color, it is, it's absolutely heartbreaking that in 2020, um, we, we are still seeing the differences in, in what adequate access to healthcare means for our communities and literally when america catches a cold we we catch pneumonia and that's the case um, with COVID 19. well thank you very much for that background you mentioned uh, your own uh, personal uh, experiences you know when i wrote my memoirs i call it blessed experiences and i talked uh, in the uh, uh, introduction to the book i wrote uh, that all of my experiences uh, have not been pleasant, but I've considered all of them to be blessings. And the reason I say that is because I maintain that we can be no more or less than what our experiences allow us to be. Uh, and I suspect uh, that your personal experiences in the city of Atlanta uh, made you uh, what you are as mayor, but now having an experience uh, with COVID-19. Uh, I suspect that that may uh, have informed you a little bit as well and allowed you to really look uh, at this pandemic and the way it affects personally and families and what the impact it has on communities. Talk to us a little bit about that. Absolutely. And, and what my grandmother used to always remind me is all things work for the good of those who love the Lord. So for me, um, as mayor of Atlanta, making decisions related to COVID, obviously, I was making it from the outside looking in, but now I'm on the, the inside of this. 
And it makes me even more grateful for things that we have in place in our household. We do have access to healthcare. We have access to technology so that we can have virtual health appointments. Uh, we also have paychecks that will continue to come in. If, if we were in very different jobs and both of us have been knocked down in the way that we have been COVID, this would have been devastating to our family. And it's just this reminder of how important it is that we've got to think about the least of these amongst us. And again, this is um, part of really my anger and my frustration with our state right now. This is not a partisan issue. It, it has nothing to do with politics. What it has to do with is life and death. And in Atlanta, these aren't subjective decisions. We're looking at data and metrics and science. And the fact that this is not happening our, across our country is the reason that we're not on the oversight, other side of COVID. When you look at other countries, I was looking at numbers out of Germany uh, just a couple of days ago. Uh, their numbers are less than 1,000 people testing positive. And in America, we're thousands upon thousands of people. And this shouldn't be happening in America in 2020. Um, but I also think in the midst of all of this, it has given leaders like me an opportunity to lead in a way that we otherwise wouldn't expect to have to lead. And I hope that it really shows the difference in leadership and has given people an opportunity to see, you know, who can step up and, and who steps back and falls back. We see the president has a complete inability to step up. Um, and that's the case with so many other leaders across this country. And I, I do hope that history will be kind to me and will judge me as having been able to step up and stand in the gap when our communities needed us most. Well, thank you so much for checking us there because that's exactly one of the things I want to uh, say to our listeners. This pandemic knows no boundaries, uh, country or country, knows no boundaries uh, with ethnicities. Uh, it has no idea about the partisanship that may exist in one state or another. Uh, as you know, I chair uh, the select committee, select subcommittee uh, to deal with COVID-19. And it's my job to make sure uh, that all the money that we're spending, uh, that Congress is allocating uh, for uh, our response to this pandemic is spent efficiently, effectively, and equitably. Those three E's we talk about all the time. And one of my jobs is trying to get uh, this full committee, seven Democrats, five Republicans, to look at this for what it is. For the first three or four meetings, all I could hear from my Republican counterparts is look at what the Democratic mayor is doing up in uh, New York. Uh, of course, they call it the Democrat mayor. The fact of the matter is, this is the uh, Democratic Party. Uh, look at what it's doing uh, up in New Jersey. Now, today, uh, we see New York reported yesterday, not one single death because of COVID-19. Look what's being reported uh, down in uh, Florida, where there's a Republican governor. Texas, a Republican governor. Here in South Carolina, a Republican governor. In Georgia, a Republican governor. None of us 
are blaming these governors for this. And it's time for us to really take a hard look at what this pandemic is doing to the people all around us. What it's doing to school children, what it's doing to families, what it's doing to these communities. And there is no respecter of political party when it comes to that. And so I'm glad that you're leading the way that you're leading. And you're raising these issues based upon what is good for the community, uh, irrespective of what political party or even political persuasions uh, one may have. And so I want to congratulate you uh, on the fine job that you've been doing in that regard. And I just want to say how much you are appreciated. I talk to a lot of people uh, who watch uh, what's going on in this country. Uh, I, I've got a strange kind of kitchen cabinet. Uh, I, I, I get on the phone and I talk to them and I ask them uh, who, what they think about this person or that person and to a person. Uh, they feel uh, that you have an example uh, of how uh, leadership ought to be conducted, uh, especially in this arena. But they also talk about you in another arena as well. And that's when it comes to policing. You've had some uh, real experiences uh, with this issue. You've been decisive uh, in taking action when you thought it should be taken. You've gotten a lot of flack uh, for having done it. Uh, but you speak of me, I will say this about you. You have been unfazed in doing what you thought was the right thing to do. And I just want you to share with us a little bit about how you see uh, this whole issue of policing, what we need to do to reimagine what policing ought to be about. Irrespective of what the history is, let's look at the present and think about the future. And tell us a little bit about what you think uh, the future of policing ought to be in this country. Well, Congressman, you know, I, I've read a lot about you and I know your history um, with student movements and how change is effectuated in this country. And I was reading with some, a meeting with some student activists recently, and one of the students said, this has to stop being a conversation about us versus them. This has to be a we conversation. And that's how we're trying to frame the conversation in Atlanta. I, I, I support our police. I did it with a 30% pay increase for our police officers, uh, the historic pay raise in our city. And the reason I did it, I didn't want police officers who didn't want to be here and who were fatigued and who couldn't even afford to live in the city amongst the communities that they are policing. Um, so that being said, weeding out who I, I think are to be officers who shouldn't be a part of our police force is not a repudiation of the force as a whole. And it is a challenging conversation to have, but clearly there are some, some issues with how we are policing in our communities. When you look at what happened with Rayshard Brooks, and I've watched in nearly 40 minutes of that interaction, if there's an officer on our, on our force who thinks they want a different outcome that could have been had in that situation, then clearly there's some changes we need to make on our police force. And it is, uh, it's challenging because 
on the one hand, you have people who don't want you to touch the police force and and think that everything they do is absolutely right. And then on the other hand, you've got some people who think everything they do is absolutely wrong and they need to be dismantled. And somewhere in the middle, I, I believe, is where our solution lies. My 18-year-old nephew was murdered. Case of mistaken identity. He was a college student visiting some friends a wrong place at the wrong time. They mistook him for a gang member, shot up his car. Who did I call? We called on the Atlanta Police Department to solve that murder. So I, I personally know how important it is to have officers uh, who are part of our force and who are working uh, to solve crimes and, and also work alongside our communities to stop crimes in our city. But on the other side of that, I also recognize that if we've got officers who are tasing students simply uh, because they can, and if a man is shot in his back simply because he runs, even if he turns around and, and shoots a taser that only had one shot left, we've got some issues here. And it is going to take some short-term work. That short-term work is looking at our policies. What can we change very quickly um, in our policies to make it clear on what our expectations are with police in our communities? The Obama-Biden 21st century plan was very clear. Police officers should be guardians and not warriors in our communities. But then there is the long-term system, systemic conversation that we have to have on making sure that we see each other. When I look at that tape with Rayshard Brooks, 40 minutes of conversation, where Mr. Brooks said to this officer that his daughter's birthday was coming up and he had given, um, he said, I gave my old lady some money for her birthday party to get some jumpies. And, and, and what struck me, Congressman, is that even after that very human encounter, what when I heard it, you I found myself like hoping there would be a, a better outcome, even though I knew what the outcome was. The systemic challenge we have before us is why was he not humanized to that officer in that moment? That would uh, allow him to make different choices uh, before shooting him in the back. That's a longer, bigger conversation that we have to have, but we're going to do all that we can do in Atlanta because I've said repeatedly, if this, if this happens in Atlanta, uh, the cradle of the civil rights movement, and, and we're supposed to be just this beacon of hope for uh, racial equality in America, if this has happened in Atlanta, then it says this will happen in any number of other places. And it's our responsibility to make the changes we can quickly, but also peel back the layers on, on those that we need to be more thoughtful about. Well, I'm glad you, you, you mentioned that because I, I watched some of it. I didn't watch the whole 40 minutes. I just watched what was made available uh, via the media. Uh, and I, I, I kept hoping myself uh, how, and, and saw how deferential uh, Mr. Brooks was. Uh, yes, sir. Uh, and you know, the kind of thing that you thought uh, that this uh, officer would give some uh, understanding of what was taking place uh, with this young man. 
it, it, it was a little bit tough. Uh, but you know, um, I was born and raised in a parsonage. Uh, my father was president of his church's presbytery. And one of my earliest memories uh, was listening to my dad, I think I was probably eavesdropping, uh, meeting with some of his ministers, uh, deciding what to do about a pastor, which they eventually defrocked. They didn't vote up the church. They didn't tear the church down. They got rid of the pastor. And the congregation kept going forward. And that, to me, I think about that often when I think about this whole discussion about police officers. They're good politicians, and there are some not-so-good politicians. Uh, they're good doctors and not good doctors. Doctors police themselves. We, uh, everybody has got a way of policing themselves. And why can't we apply that same principle to police officers is beyond me. If you've got good police officers, let's support them. And we do. And you have done it. But if you've got a bad apple, uh, we need to find out uh, how to get rid of them and not uh, allow them to spoil the whole barrel. So uh, thank you for continuing uh, the press on that. And I hope uh, that the city uh, will rally around your efforts and, and let's once again let Atlanta show uh, this country uh, how uh, to be. I think we just said Atlanta was too busy to hate or something of that sort of. Uh, but let's get busy uh, and get all of this behind us. Let me ask you a little bit about um, uh, some of what we were experiencing uh, with um, the whole issue of race in a broader sense. Uh, I know a little bit about the latter. And, uh, I've watched the history of this whole issue of race uh, in, in America. If I go all the way back to uh, Booker T. Washington, W.E.B. Du Bois, I, uh, the, the Atlanta Compromise, what we call it, this whole issue has shown differences even within uh, the races. Uh, the fact of the matter is uh, we are facing uh, today uh, a very critical choice as to the way forward. How do you see it? Uh, all the debate on the Confederate battle flag, as well as uh, these monuments and these statues. Uh, how do you see that issue? The way I see it, Congressman, is you know what's what's old is new, and I know you know that because you are a historian and. Uh, when we say we don't see race and we shouldn't see race, I think that that's a fundamental failure on our part because there is a story and a history that comes with all of us. And we have to see those differences to understand our perspective. And so I may not have lived through slavery, but I was raised by a woman whose grandparents were enslaved. So it's not a, a stretch to think that there may be some history and even some baggage that we are still carrying through the generations. And I think at least for the first time in my lifetime, there is an interest in having this conversation. And for the first time in my lifetime, 
I felt like I could pull back the mask and have this conversation. Paul Lawrence Dunbar, we wear the mask who grins and lies. So I'm able to say in mixed company now that I'm hurting and that I, I, I often feel I am treated differently, even as an elected official. I just had this conversation uh, with some reporters that I, I joined so many other elected officials and feeling like there is a presumption that we are all criminals until proven innocent. And whether it is as an elected official or whether it is a black man encountering in in, uh, in police on the street, um, there is this presumption of guilt that I think many of us feel as if we carry by nature of who we are as African Americans in this country. And so I think in the same way we see in corporate settings and other settings where you have facilitated conversations about race, I'm not sure that we don't need to have this same facilitated type conversation as a country. Uh, we're looking at it in Atlanta. We, um, I went through what's called Leadership Atlanta and Al Vivian, C.T. Vivian's son, does this facilitated conversation with groups on race relations and how we see each other differently in these inherent biases. I think at some level, we've got to do that as a country. I don't know how we do it, but I certainly think it would be helpful because it is, it's very clear that we've been putting band-aids on gaping wounds in this country. And those gaping, those wounds are still there because we've never dealt with it. We have never had finality as it relates to our, our feelings about slavery and just even the recognition of, of how devastating that has been for generations in the African-American community. And so, the, you know, it's, um, in short, it's complicated. I, I don't know what the answers are, but I know a good starting point is at least is being recognized in a way that I have not seen, and, and I'm 50 years old, I've not seen it in my lifetime, and, and I'm, I'm grateful that there's at least a recognition that race and race relations in this uh, country still have a very long way to go. Well, you know, as we say, uh, I said earlier about experiences, um, if you talk about us being uh, but the sum total of our experiences, the fact of the matter is, uh, if you have had some experiences dictated by skin color, just as you have experiences dictated by gender, it means uh, that those things are there, those experiences are there, and it's our job to try to figure out how to work through those experiences, how to work around them, how to accommodate them. I've had it, you know, I was married to, uh, uh, to one lady for 58 years, uh, and uh, when my wife uh, and I first got married, uh, I realized early that our backgrounds, experiences were different, and if there's going to be any success, uh, in that uh, marriage, uh, some adjustments had to be made, and I made them, uh, and uh, it worked well for 58 years. And we were of the same same skin color, same complexion, uh, 
but she grew up on a little farm down in Berkeley County. Uh, she walked two and a half miles to school every morning, two, two and a half miles back home every afternoon. And, and those experiences were totally different from mine. And, and that's the thing I've tried to get some of my friends to understand. Uh, you got to look at people's backgrounds, look at their experiences, and to the extent that those experiences came about uh, because of racial differences, we got to learn how to accommodate those. You and I have something in common. I don't know if you uh, know this enough, but for my memory serves, your mother's a beautician. Yep. And so was my mother. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I grew up uh, around the beauty shop, and I know what kind of discussions go on in the beauty shop. I learned my politics uh, out of the beauty shop. Absolutely. Most people uh, talk about it as a barbershop thing. It was the beauty shop with me. And so the kinds of discussions that take place in the beauty shop uh, that I, I used to eavesdrop on, uh, or the kinds of discussions that will inform you uh, very well uh, about some basic experiences that people have. And so I'm sure uh, that uh, a lot of that had to do uh, with what made you who and what you are today. Uh, why don't you share a little bit of those experiences with us? Oh, wow. I, I have so many fun memories. And, you know, in the African-American community, it's the beauty shop is a lot of things all in one. It, it's the psychologist's office. It's the, the medical doctor's office. It's the, the church. It, I mean, it's all these things because you get it all and you hash it all out. And for me personally, it was one watching my mother run this business and we talk about what you bring your experiences to the table it's why when COVID hit i started the uh strength and beauty fund in atlanta where we were passing out grants and continuing to pass out grants to barber and beauty shop um and, and barbers and hairstylists because I knew that they would fall through the cracks because they are not your traditional businesses, oftentimes with employees. A lot of times people have booth rent. They don't have traditional um, relationships with banks, et cetera. And so we tried to stand in the gap. But again, it goes back to my personal experience sitting in my mother's hair salon. Um, I, I learned lots of things. I learned how you, um, find the number in the newspaper every day because I used to have to take the money over next door to the man who ran the numbers before the lottery. Um, I also uh, knew that I had to work if I wanted some extra money. I was going to have to sweep some floors and shampoo hair, but it's also the place uh, in the same way that I had these interactions with, with the, the hustlers and, and, the, and, and these wonderful characters on our streets. It's the same place had an interaction with a woman who was the Dean of Library Sciences, Lorraine Brown, over at the Atlanta University Center, who sat and talked with me, and would bring me books to read, and encouraged me to apply to FAMU, and told me all of the reasons I needed to go to a HBCU, and how rich of an experience I would have at FAMU. So being in that beauty salon and around that beauty salon, it has everything to do with who I am today and just the work ethic. And I'm, I know you know this, watching your mother work, uh, they stand on their feet and they bend and they work 
they stand for 12 hours at a time, 16 hours at a time. And all the while they have to have a smile on their faces and they've got to listen to people talk, listen to people complain, and they've got to be all these things to so many people. So it's a really difficult job, but in so many ways it's the glue that keeps our communities together, which is, again, going back to COVID, I was so concerned when we recklessly opened the state and, I, and we began with beauty shops and barber shops because we know in the African-American community, everybody comes through them. And when you open them up without giving people access to protective equipment um, and really giving them a choice of whether or not they can stay home or they need to open back up, that there's a trickle down effect in the African-American community because it's such a central um, it's a central gathering spot for so many people. That's quite true. And you know, uh, I remember way back when we had the uh, uh, AIDS epidemic, really, um, the most effective programs here in South Carolina uh, were uh, conducted through beauty shops. Uh, and it taught me uh, a lot about how that could be extended, you know, when I was growing up, I used to sweep the beauty shop every, mm -hmm. <laughs> often, not just every day, but every two or three hours, you got to go through it and uh, sweep it up. And that's how I made extra money too. And then uh, it wasn't anything on the early Monday mornings, you know, a lot of times with people in the chair painting the beauty shop. That's how I made money to finish my last semester at South Carolina State. Uh, so uh, beauty shops, barber shops are very important. Uh, not just uh, for beauty uh, and to, uh, for your own good looks, but it's very, very important uh, to get a good understanding of what makes people uh, take, what makes people react, and how people see themselves and, uh, and their communities, and really how they see their politics. And let's close this today and talk a little bit about where we are with voting. Those beauty shops and bomb shops can mean a whole lot uh, when it comes to voting, what the future should be. I know that you're a very early supporter uh, of Joe Biden uh, to be uh, the next president of the United States. Uh, I suspect uh, that you see a role uh, that the beauty shops can play in helping uh, him to be successful. Uh, would you like to share a little bit uh, about that today? Absolutely, and uh, I was saying it, and, and, and I'm so glad that you didn't make a liar out of me when we got to <laughs> South Carolina. I kept saying the South's got something to say, and you all brought it home um, in South Carolina, and the rest literally is history. and. The biggest role that our beauty and barbershops can play this year is encouraging people to register to vote and turning out to vote. My biggest fear right now is not that Donald Trump is going to get any other African-American vote. My biggest fear is that that vote is going to be suppressed and we're already seeing it happening. You cannot tell me that with a lot of the upheaval and unrest we're seeing in our communities that that is not being inflamed by outside folk because we saw it in 2016. We saw that there was activity uh, 
under the guise of Black Lives Matter, et cetera. And that's not to take away anything from this important cause and moment in time. But there is, um, it, the, our streets are, are, are a tinderbox right now. And there are other people who are taking advantage of that. My biggest concern is that we're going to stay home in 2016, that right now with COVID, with so many people dying and unemployed, and we are feeling hopeless as a community, uh, that we will feel as if we don't have a reason and motivation to show up and vote. And there's no place like a beauty shop and a barber shop where you have people, you have a captive audience. And in the same way Obama really tapped into that, going into the beauty and barber shops and getting the barbers and the hairstylists to speak to their clients about going to vote. I think that same opportunity exists today and it's such an important conversation that has to be had. And people have to understand what COVID has done to our community specifically and how it didn't have to be this way had we had different leadership. And I, I said it, our barbers and our hairstylists, they're often our counselors, they're our psychologists, they're, but they're also our cheerleaders. And they motivate us and encourage us to do things. And in addition to voting, it's also filling out the census form which is so incredibly important this year. And this conversation is uh, not being elevated in the way that it should because of COVID. And it, there's nothing more important that's gonna happen over the next 10 years for our communities and making sure that we, we are counted and represented in the way that we should be. And that conversation is a big conversation that happens in our churches and also in our beauty shops and our barber shops. And thank you for bringing up uh, this whole issue of the census. You know, we, a lot of times we talk about uh, the census and its importance with determining uh, how many uh, legislators uh, may come from where, how many Congress people uh, may come from where. Uh, but we have to emphasize that census is very important to how much money goes where. And we, if we're not counted uh, on uh, census day, uh, we're not going to be uh, counted uh, when appropriations are made uh, and the money goes out. And so it's important uh, that we fill the census uh, form out. It takes uh, less than two minutes to do. Uh, I went online and did mine, and I'm not an online person, uh, but I did it. Uh, online, and it was much less than two minutes even for me. Mm. So I know uh, it can be done rather quickly. So I would hope that the people who are listening to Clyburn Chronicles today uh, don't just help us get people registered. We need people to be registered. And help us get people to the polls to vote. That we need also. But we also need people to fill out that census form so that we can get the allocations coming into these communities that are needed to help us uh, improve housing conditions, help us get expenditures uh, for education, help us get uh, the money that's necessary for broadband deployment, which is how we are going to be able to get uh, telehealth that's needed in these communities, uh, get 
uh, online education that's going to be needed in our schools mm -hmm. going forward much more uh, than ever any of us thought uh, about, uh, say, a year ago. So we've got to get the money. And if the money, if we're not counted, uh, then we are not going to be accounted for uh, when Congress starts giving up the money. Uh, so thank you so much for bringing up the census. That is very, very important. But you know, I got a surprise. I went to my barbershop this morning. Uh, and um, I got one of the biggest surprises I've ever gotten. Uh, when the gentleman that was there, a barber, uh, in uh, this barbershop, he's new to this particular barbershop. He said to me this morning, and why he said this to me, I don't know. This is going to be the first time in my life that I've ever voted. Mm. I was shocked to hear him say that. And I have not known him that long. Uh, he was not my barber because uh, uh, <laughs> he wouldn't have been my barber if I had known he was not voting. Uh, <laughs> but he told me today this is going to be his first time. And he went on and on and on about why he was voting this year. So I think that we're going to have to let people know how important it is. This gentleman knows how important it is for the first time in his life. I suspect there are a lot of others like him. And so I said to him, thank you for doing that. And please help us with your friends who may not have been voting as well. So this is going to be a very important year. You have been a very important part of this year. And last year, you are a very important part of the body politic in this country. And I want to thank you so much. And I got to just tell you, my listeners, this, uh, that you may be a graduate of Florida and m You may be <laughs> the mayor of Atlanta, but you are a South Carolinian by birth. I appreciate that. My, my daddy uh, used to perform in South Carolina. Um, my dad was Major Lance. He lived in Rock Hill. He loved South Carolina. So I, I claim it too. Very good. Thank you so much. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for helping us make Clyburn Chronicles a very important part uh, of the body politic in this country and of helping to inform people on what is going on around us, how we should react to it, and how we should plan for the future, a future that all of us will hope will be much, much better than the past has been. Amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of Clyburn Chronicles. If you enjoyed this episode, please let us know by leaving a comment. And don't forget to subscribe to my show wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode. Until next time, I'm Congressman Jim Clyburn.